Welcome to Season 8 of Purposeful Empathy, a show that is dedicated to amplifying the voices of people from around the globe who understand the world needs more empathy and are doing something about it. Today's episode is brought to you by Grant Huron International, an on-demand coaching provider for individuals and companies. Thanks so much for watching. Enjoy the show. So welcome to a new episode of Purposeful Empathy. Today I am joined by Joan Blades, who is the co-founder of livingroomconversations.org, an open source effort to build respectful connections across ideological, cultural, and party lines while embracing our core shared values. She believes when we care about each other, we work to find ways to meet each other's needs. Joan is also co-founder of MomsRising.org, a network of people united by the goal of building a more family-friendly America, and MoveOn.org, where millions mobilize for a better society. She is the author of The Custom Fit Workplace and The Motherhood Manifesto. A mediator by training and inclination, she is a true believer in our power, in the power of our citizens and need for respectful discourse while embracing our cord share values. Thank you so much for joining. Welcome to the show, Joan. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I think I discovered your work when I was writing a chapter about what I called communities of empathic practice. So the idea of like who, which groups of people are trying to elevate our collective empathic consciousness and our collective empathic action. And I just fell in love with the concept. So can you just start by sharing what, what is a living room conversation and how does it work? Living room conversation is super simple. It's typically six, four to six people. And we have conversation guides over 150 of them on specific topics. They start with everyone going through a set of agreements about how they're going to have the conversation. And it's basically what you learned in kindergarten. It's be respectful, be curious, take turns, own your part of the conversation. People are good at this. They know how to do it. And then they have three rounds. The first round is basically an opportunity to get a sense of who you're sitting with and ask people a little bit about their, reveal some of their deeper values. It's like, what would your best friend say about who you are? Or what's your mission in life? But then the next set of conversations are about whatever topic you've decided to talk about. And this is all very transparent. Everyone can look at the guide ahead of time. And it's what's your personal relationship with this particular issue? And right now, abortion is a huge thing that we're talking about in the US and our abortion guide is not about the political talking points. It's about your relationship with that issue, how it's, how it's touched your life. And then the close is just a opportunity to reflect and any next steps. It's that simple, but it's also remarkably powerful. And so you do it online and you do it in person. Is that what I understand? Yes. Um, online is something we started doing uh, probably five years ago when video became good enough. And we had some research done with in partnership with Fetzer 2019, 2020, 18 month research project in what we discovered was both our in-person and our 
video conversations had both the short-term and longer-term impacts we were looking for, mm. which you know are about, actually they're about empathy, they're about building listening skills, they're about connection, right? And so what would you say to the skeptics? Because maybe you have some anecdotal examples. I'm imagining people saying like, yeah, well, it's all nice that people come together across these ideological and political divides and have a respectful conversation and listen to each other's personal takes on the matter. But that doesn't change anybody's opinion. And it really, you know, so what do you say to the skeptics? What have you seen that actually you think provides the impact you're looking for? Well, people keep on thinking that human beings are rational, first and foremost, and they're emotional, first and foremost. Mm. So in terms of changing people's minds, when's the last time you've changed anyone's mind by having a <laughs> argument with them or a, you know, trying to persuade them? When people's minds change, it's because they care about you more often than not. Yeah, so the, you can't even begin to have a conversation about content and you have a connection. And so this is about that connection that we all need to have. And the, one of the stories I often tell is I have a dear friend in Utah and climate change is a top concern for me. However, <laughs> it wasn't on his list of concerns particularly. And over the course of time, it, it got onto his list, not because I'm incredibly persuasive, but because he cares about me. And he has another friend he really cares about that. It's when people you love really are concerned about something, you start to care some. He's concerned about being marginalized as a person of faith. I don't want my friend marginalized. Right. Yeah, it's just that it's so simple when you really think about it. Um, when we care about each other, everything shifts. So do you envision the living room conversations happening among people who already know each other and decide that they want to have a meaningful dialogue one evening or are perfect strangers joining conversations? How does that work? It started with two people with differences, friends, optimally, each invite two friends for a conversation. And that was a wonderful way to have a living room conversation because you have connections and you get to meet new people too. Mm -hmm. And I actually did it with a co-founder of Tea Party Patriots years ago, which was really amazing. <laughs> and we had a wonderful, powerful conversation. But it's also been done in faith communities because there are differences within faith communities that may not get addressed. Mm -hmm. And libraries, because they're different. In, you know, there's all sorts of communities that do them. So those connections that we want to have be high quality get nurtured and improved, right? And during COVID, people did it just to connect. Uh, there was one Catholic uh, community that had them weekly just to take care of each other. And I know uh, a mother that had, you know, her mom in another state and her nephews in another state, and she had them with family. And it was a way that she got to take care of her mother and she got to know, know her nephews in ways she never would have. So the 
the ways they happen are very diverse. And um, in some cases here in the States, it's become harder for the original format because people became uncomfortable asking a friend, a neighbor, a colleague to co-host a conversation because things got so polarized. Mm. And now I'm seeing maybe it's people that have deeper relationships that have been harmed that are going to be doing this. Mm. So we're learning all the time. This is an open source project where we're learning from people doing it. And it's a virtuous cycle in the best of possible worlds. Well, the, uh, the, the, in the description below is the link to livingroomconversations.org. And I went on to look at the list of topics. When you say 150 topics, I mean, it's so broad. There's so many interesting, fascinating. They don't have to be the most divisive and polarizing topics to choose from. Um, and I love the guides that go with it. And I think that's where the real power is that there's an intentionality for how the conversation should unfold to actually optimize for the kind of conversation you want to have, right? So it's not a free for all. Let's come in and let's, you know, go to, go to town and challenge each other. It's really meant to create sort of um, a collective intelligence outside of the individual speakers on a topic. And we're meant to really come out caring and, 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 and knowing each other on a deeper level, right? Yes, exactly. You, you have said it perfectly. Right. Well, I look forward to drawing it actually. So I'm curious to know, even though I probably can intuit what the answer might be. I mean, you've been an activist and a social entrepreneur for your whole life based on all of the previous work you've done. Um, what was that moment where you felt like you needed to do something for living room conversations? Like, is there a story behind that? Or like, tell me a little bit about your own self and your own journey. Okay. I was born in Berkeley, California. That's where I grew up. I went other places in my 20s. I came back to Berkeley. I live in a very progressive world. And I was truly curious what's going on that conservatives don't care about climate change. This is, you know, this is a shared concern, right? And so way back in 2004, I started working with a group called Reuniting America to have some great conversations with people on the right. And at that time, I was, you know, in leadership at Move On. And it was really productive and enlightening for me because I want to understand what the obstacles are. Mm. By 2008, it was harder to have a good conversation about climate change mm. with someone on the right. And that struck me as a bad direction. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't remember when Mulan started. It was back in the Clinton impeachment scandal. And at that time, I'd say, oh, this is crazy and polarized. And we wrote a one-sentence petition, which we shared with our friends, my husband and I did, saying, censor the president and move on to pressing issues facing the nation. Move on. And we sent it to under 100 of our friends and family in 98. And it just grew by 100,000 people in a week, which had, it was unique for that time. The yeah. Yeah. internet wasn't what it was. Yeah, yeah. you went viral, pre-viral. And we had a tiger by the tail. And so I've been learning about political organizing since that time. But the thing to remember is I got into this through a unifying petition. Mm 
You could hate Clinton or love Clinton and agree that the best thing for the country was to censure and move on. Right, right. And what happened is after an election in which the impeachment was actually not popular, two weeks later, the House voted to impeach. And we're going, and we thought it was a flash campaign. Mm -hmm. And we'd gotten hundreds of thousands of people engaged in politics for the first time in their lives. Okay. So we said, okay, good citizens. They try to elect people that reflect their values. And we said, okay, we'll stay through to 2000. And elections are adversarial, win-lose processes. And that got us embedded in the progressive world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was, and that was a comfortable place for me. But it was an attempt to diminish polarization. The big moments for move on during my time there with the original impeachment, the let the inspections work, lead up to the Iraq war and the election of Obama. And those are all times when people were saying, we can do this together. Mm. Um, But at a certain point, Moms Rising said, okay, mothers, people don't really hate mothers. That's not why there's huge bias against them and hiring wages and advancement. And so that was another way to say, okay, how can we do things together? And then finally, it's like, okay, we got to go directly at the problem. <laughs> we got to So that's my progression. And do you feel that you have your counterparts on the other side? Like, you know, you feel comfortable in your progressive skin, and yet you're reaching across the aisle on purpose to have these unifying conversations and to build bridges. And you feel like you're being met by your equals on the other side, right? Um, I mean, John is a wonderful... We, I have people on the right that I am close to. This mm-hmm. is all, and I don't know what an equal is, honestly. Right. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a question I cannot answer. Um, we don't have enough people showing up on either side. We have too many people saying, I don't want to talk to those people. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you talk about the obstacles to this work, there's so many people that have retreated into their own world Mm -hmm. that we are fighting an uphill battle in some ways. And I'm hoping that that viral moment will come when we go, this is not tolerable. Everybody, you know, talks about how there's this middle that is just turned off by the partisanship on both sides. Mm -hmm. And those if, if they're there, those people need to show up in big numbers now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a theory that we have 70% of the population that really would like to be effective working together. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to give voice to the people that see that we have to start with connection. Because... So- so does that mean you're down on, on all the social media platforms as like, you know, what they've done to, to create those cleavages? They've only worsened them. Everybody's in echo chambers. Are you down on, on technology and social media? We have a technology and relationships living in conversation. Mm. There are aspects of our technology 
that bring us together. Like this conversation we're having right now. It's amazing that we can do this. Mm-hmm. We have people that have uh, living room conversations in their community, and then they want to have conversations across the country. Mm-hmm. We have tens of millions of people now that that are able and comfortable having a conversation at a distance. So we can reconnect people or maybe not even reconnect, connect people <laughs> locally mm-hmm. and then give people that are really inspired this the opportunity to do it on a national scale if they choose to and on an international scale. Yeah. But there's also the aspect of social media and the media period and some leaders that know that what gets shared is that which brings us fear, anxiety, and anger. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what's most shareable. And if you've got a algorithm that's going for maximum human attention, it's going to have some very negative impacts. Yeah. It amplifies that negative toxic stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I read a book about a year ago that basically said, turn off the news. (laughs) Today's episode was brought to you by Grand Huron International, an on-demand coaching provider for individuals and companies. Joan, you've got one living room conversation um, devoted to the power of empathy. What are, what's that one about? And what other guides do you think might be of interest to people who are interested in deepening their capacity to empathize? Well, certainly that one is front and center on, you know, maybe an example of a couple questions from that guide. Yeah. Um, It gives people an opportunity to answer the questions. How do you feel when someone else truly understands what you're going through Mm. or how have you been able to tell that someone understands what you have experienced or felt? Mm. What helps you understand what someone else is experiencing or feeling? What gets in your way? Mm. How do you stay fully present and attentive when deeply listening to someone? Mm. In what ways has empathy for another person prompted you to take action? Explain. Now think of, those questions being answered by a group of people that you love or that you've never met before that are diverse. You know, diversity doesn't have to be just political. You've got age, you've got gender, you've got culture. There's so many different ways that we are diverse. The fascinating thing about these conversations is I always learn something about myself in them. I learned about others, but, you know, I had the forgiveness conversation years ago and was just kind of stunned to think, you know, I've lived for decades and decades, and yet I've never thought about forgiveness in these more detailed ways. Mm. Good questions are, you know, very evocative of thoughts that, you know, are there, but we haven't ever articulated. And, it, it, you know, just deepening our understanding of ourselves as well as others and making connections is, it's rich. Yeah, I mean, what, 
for about 14 or 15 years in a row now, I've had what I call ode to soup, which is, you know, uh, a, a potluck where a few people bring soups and we have soup tastings. We were like, you know, anywhere from 15 to 30 women in my living room. And we all sit in a circle and share stories and we pull out our tissues and all kind of stuff. And I'm sensing that, you know, in, on one hand, living room conversations is really about finding bridge building. But on another level, I think it could also be attractive to people who just want to feel connected to others because, you know, there's a sense of humanity wants to feel a sense of belonging. And, you know, whether it's technology or whether it's the social distancing and social isolation that COVID's brought about, I think we're all yearning for these deep conversations. And I think, you know, I, I, I hear in the background Brené Brown's work on vulnerability that if I show up as a vulnerable person, I give you permission to show up as a vulnerable person. And then when we discard all our social masks and kind of just talk about what we're really feeling underneath the, the posturing, that we really can feel each other and empathize on a whole new level. Yes. So I just want to ask you in your life, because, you know, you've been an activist, you're, you, you know, you've been making stuff happen, but this is a slightly different modality for you, right? Like living room conversations is a totally different beast than some of the other work that you've done. So how has this work changed you and your personal relationships and your relationship to listening and all of that? How has it impacted you? In so many ways. <laughs> I mean... It's made my life richer, more complex, more confusing. Mm. You know, when you, I care so deeply about people that, you know, are so wrong. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> the way we, you know, I might have once thought about it. And it makes me very much less, I know what's what. Mm. Um, and... It's a practice in optimism, Mm. you know, that commitment to people that if we are in connection with each other, we will find a way. If we're not in connection with each other, you know, I started with the climate change issue because and it was a energy and climate. And we quickly learned that if you want people that don't believe in climate, you just have the energy conversation and people that are concerned about climate can talk about climate. Um, and it's like, I, I've learned a lot. <laughs> but I've also come to the conclusion, I don't care what people talk about. Mm. I want them to have that listening skills. It is really empathy skills, right? If you really get down to it, those two are very entwined. Mm -hmm. And once we are able to see every human being, see the faith communities say beautifully, seeing the divinity in everyone, Mm. then we have a chance of being able to truly meet the really complex goals we have. In the U.S., we have been, you know, trying to, in agreement that we want affordable, great health care for decades. Mm-hmm. And yet we have the most expensive health care in the world. 
And we're not even in the top 10 when it comes to outcomes. So to think this is about persuasion, that climate is an issue, that whatever it is, is the top issue. It's just not seeing that it's a much bigger challenge than that. Mm -hmm. It's about us being in real relationship with people that we don't agree with, being able to hold the tension of our differences. Mm -hmm. That's that's a challenge. The world is, they're not black and white. We have shades of gray. And in fact, we have a rainbow of colors. <laughs> and we're, we want the simplicity too often. And that gives us comfort, but that comfort will not allow us to come up with the solutions that are critical for our collective flourishing. Yeah. And I know that some sort of political science research looks at what are the fundamental values that underpin the sort of like the right and underpin the left. And I don't actually remember what they are, although I imagine freedom would be one that is important um, to, to the right. But have you noticed that there are, you know, at the end of the day, you can drill down to a certain set of values across these two different divides, or even then there's, there's commonality, but they are articulated or, or envisioned in different ways. It's, this is part of the, what feels like a manipulation that's happened that it's one or the other. Hmm. This is a tension. I, I dream of having someone to work with on tension conversations. Hmm. Yeah. The end of the pledge of allegiance is freedom and justice for all. Mm-hmm. Well, if you have all freedom and no justice, that's no good. And if you have all justice and no freedom, that's no good. There are times mm-hmm. we need both. And there will be times when they have clashes. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have to navigate that mm-hmm. in an ongoing way. That's powerful. You know, yeah. do you want to be honest or do you want to be kind? Right. There is a tension there sometimes. Yeah. And we, we need to navigate that. I wish it was simple, but it isn't. <laughs> it's just mm. human beings are complicated. So it's not as if living room conversations is really sort of um, a, a landing place. Like if we only got everybody through a living room conversation, we would fix the world. It really sounds like the living room conversation as a tool needs to be regularly revisited until you kind of develop a certain set of um, ways of listening and ways of speaking and ways of being um, holding space and being in tension that becomes more natural, right? So isn't this something that you want to practice becoming in your world? It's a practice. Yes. And I, there's an evangelical community in Boise that started by doing it internally within mm-hmm. the community. And then they invited for people from outside the community to come and join the conversation. And they wanted to have the hard conversations. You know, they had the guns and responsibility conversation mm. with people that, you know, were traumatized by guns and were ready to bot- die for their second amendment rights. Yeah. And yeah, the good thing is I had someone that you know gave me a report back on one table. And you know, it wasn't that they changed each other's minds, it's that they they gained appreciation for each other's how important it was in terms of relationship that guns were part of the culture and the connection to fathers and things like that. 
and that trauma and real harm had been done with, with guns. And you appreciate that and you haven't made the world simpler, but you've made it more real. And that appreciation for each other's, you know, space in the world is just critical for us to be able to proceed in a way that we take care of each other. Because that's ultimately what we want to and need to do. Most people want to do that. When you get to what are the basics, most people share those really core values. Dignity is something Mm. that I think everyone wants to be giving you. We did. Yep, absolutely. 100%. So you've called up two little questions before I get to the final question of the interview. One is you said tables, which made me realize that I suppose this kind of thing could happen in an event. So I'm thinking my classroom. I have, let's say, 45 students in my classroom. One class we devote to living room conversations where I could literally cluster people in groups of four, five, or six. And they choose, everybody chooses their own conversation that they want to do with the only their, their own set of guides of questions. And then that could unfold over a period of time. And then we could have like a debrief on the experience, not on the top content. Like that would be possible, right? It would be possible. It's typically not done that way. You choose one conversation. Okay. Everyone has the same conversation. Okay. And I always think about which you don't want a conversation that is about a polarized topic, unless you're intentional about having diversity in that specific, specific, for example, the, the conversation about technology and relationships or empathy any group can have that right right trust you know these are fine but if you have one of the highly polarized conversations you don't want someone to feel like i'm the only person like this in this conversation and everyone else is a group that's a good point do do you use living room conversations as a fundraiser event because i'm thinking that there might be groups that could use that as the the mechanism by which they could raise funds do you know if that's happening I don't. And we need more funds. So we should put in. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm even thinking like other organizations, you know, they have their casino night or whatever, or murder mystery night. They should have a living room conversation night and, and raise funds. Maybe I'll do that. Okay. Um, the second question I want to ask you about, you, you mentioned the word trauma and traumatized uh, a couple of times there. And some of my newer reading is really about um, the degree to which we are living through collective trauma and how, you know, deep seated trauma is in living in our bodies. Do you also think the living room conversation is a way of healing? Yes. Um, One of the, we, we have conversations that are paired with books sometimes or documentaries Nita Sanchez wrote a book, The Four Sacred Gifts, mm-hmm. and Indigenous Wisdom for Modern Times. Forgiveness is the first of those conversations. Hope, healing, unity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, to me, that is part of that, right? Yeah. And, you know, belonging and mental health are key focuses for us this year. We're because so many people have felt, you know, kind of disconnected by COVID. And it's been a challenging time. We're constantly learning from our users. And it's, you know, it's a different kind of conversation that we're having with our users 
that allows us to learn and they are us really, right? Right. I'm a, a co-founder, but really living room conversations is all the users of this practice. So what's the little workaround for privacy? I'm just curious, as people show up for these conversations, they're sharing things that could be intimate or at least personal. Um, What what happens at the beginning of the conversation to establish norms around privacy and, and, and that sort of thing? The conversation agreements are the primary starter. And we haven't in I think in the mental health, we talk a little bit about privacy, mm-hmm. but it's not a core part of our positioning. Mm-hmm. People are, they're private in that you're there and some people do want that and you're, it's open source. You're able to say, and we don't talk about this. Right. But in general, there's a pretty high level of trust going in and coming through, you know, I think there are different conversations where that's more of an issue or less of an issue. Got it. Last question, Joan. Um, I love asking my guests at the end of our conversations, if they would be willing to share a story from their own life about what it, a time when you were on the receiving end of empathy from someone and what that meant for you. Well, I've got COVID right now. People are bringing me cookies. (laughs) That's soup, cookies. I see. Okay. (laughs) I have a sweet tooth. (laughs) Okay, good to know. You know, I get small things arriving here and there is a very sweet thing. And many of them have, you know, had it already or been isolated. Being isolated is not my favorite thing. So you see, you're taking me, keeping me company here. Well, thank you for for going ahead with the call, even though you're not uh, you're not your usual self. You're a little under the weather there. So you've got people who, you know, I love asking this question because I never know what story I'm going to get. And this just popped into your mind because it's really like a lived moment for you. Um, I, I find it such an encouraging question because people can think of things right away and people's small acts of kindness or empathy from even many years ago. Um, still matter. So I always feel it's useful to end the conversation with this kind of question because it's a reminder as we get off or as I get off a call, where can I, where can I practice a little empathy for the re- remainder of my day and look how accessible it is and how good it, it, it does, you know, like if we spread it around a little bit more. Yes. No, I'm, I'm very appreciative of the small things that arrive and and just the, you know, maybe a beautiful picture in an email or a text, right? Mm -hmm. Right now, people, friends that know are going, okay, here, (laughs) taking care of me a little bit, which is very sweet. Which is what you deserve, Joan. So With that, I hope you feel better soon. Thank you for making the time to have this conversation. I look forward to diving into living room conversations, maybe bringing it to my classrooms. I hope everyone will check out the link. Consider hosting a living room conversation uh, in your living room, across your dining room table, in a park somewhere. Thank you so much for watching and listening. We'll see you next week at Purposeful Empathy. Thank you so much. 
What if you had access to your own council of coaches to help you break free of your thinking clutter, make that important decision, and liberate you from whatever is holding you back? At Grand Huron International, you get to choose the coach of your choice anytime from anywhere. Visit grandhuroninternational.ca and harness the power of on-demand coaching today.